Just before we jump into the sermon, I was thinking this morning as I was walking over just um, how God is always in the business of showing his glory through seemingly weak or insignificant things. I think of Gideon's army and judges, how they had too many people and God kept saying to them, you have too many people, um, you will think that you did this, get rid of them, um, you have way too many and then he, he refined them all the way down to just 300 men and then brought about the victory in a way so that the people would know we did practically nothing. God did everything. And God is always in the business of doing this because he is passionate about his glory and praise God that he is passionate about his glory because when he is passionate about his glory and reveals it to us and that is the best thing for us because we were made to worship him in his glory. And for all of you, uh, I don't know if I've made this explicit or not, but we are a church plant. And though there was five of us that moved over, I consider all of you um, members in, in one sense of this church plant a very significant time. We plant churches because, as we've just been singing, um, God is worthy of worship. And so we gather as a church body to worship God. We don't stop worshiping him when we walk out these doors, but we gather on Sundays and on Wednesdays and whenever we can to worship God. And we do that as a church plant. And we are a small community. And I'm very thankful uh, that we are because um, God is always in the business of using seemingly insignificant things to display his glory. And so I hope that you all can take great encouragement from that in recognizing that this is no small thing for us to come and gather and worship the living God and do it in a new community, in a place like Canberra. Um, I don't want anyone to think that this is just like a kind of hobby that you do. I remember when I first started going to church early on, my parents um, had this shocking moment about a year or two into it where they were like, hang on, you actually believe the Bible and you're like committing to this? And to them, it was just like, oh, Tom's found a hobby. He's not drinking so much anymore. He's found some structure. That's great. Just like when he went to Boy Scouts as a kid. That's not Christianity. Like you give your whole life to this. And so this is a very significant time. So I'm very thankful for all of you. And I just encourage you to consider yourselves part of this community for the purpose primarily of worshiping the Lord. And so that's why we gather. And it's no small thing to do that. Let me pray. And then we will jump into our message today. Father, we ask right now that you would speak to us because your servants are listening. We want to hear from you. We want the name of Jesus to be magnified. We want you to captivate our hearts and cause a reverence to fall upon us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The idea of lust in our society is something that has become normalized. So lust is something, no matter how you talk about it, you might use different language, but lust is something that is actually pretty normal in our society. Some of you were um, gathering with us when we were meeting at my parents' place under the pergola um, early on. And in one of those sermons, when we were going through the, the letters to the church in Revelation, I spoke about a guy called Edward Bernays. 
who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he was employed by the American Tobacco Company almost 100 years ago in the 1920s um, to basically get more people to smoke, and particularly women. They wanted women to start smoking, and they were just kind of dumbfounded as to how they could make this happen. And then Edward Bernays came along because he employed a lot of Freud psychoanalysis to marketing. The idea of Freud in an extremely oversimplistic way was that we're just all driven by desire. We're all driven by our desires. And so Bernays said, well, if we can capture that, if we can capture people's desires, then we can basically make them do anything. If we just capture their desire, and one of the most powerful desires that humans will face is sexual desire, lust. And so what Edward Bernays did was in the 1929 Easter parade, he employed a bunch of um, models, some women to march in the parade and to smoke cigarettes. And then he also got some photographers to take photos of them in very glamorous, alluring positions, smoking cigarettes. And what happen, what he thought would happen and what did happen is that uh, more men would want to smoke because they associated, you know, beautiful women with cigarettes and then that became attractive to them. And then women who wanted to look appealing thought, I should smoke cigarettes. And they captured, you know, more of the market because people were driven by uh, lust. They were driven by desire. And it's not hard to see from this how decades later we kind of hear the slogan a lot, sex sells. That's a very common thing. So from this, following on from this, we can see how uh, our inner desires, like our inner desire for lust is something that modern marketing has harnessed to sell products. So we come across products that have nothing to do with sex or have nothing to do with the human body, yet they will stick a male model or a female model in their advertising campaign to basically sell the product. And it's very easy to captivate us in that way. This sexualized culture that we live in normalizes lust. It makes it something that isn't really that bad. Now, that's our culture. We shouldn't think that the human race has never struggled with this. Lust has always been something that cultures have struggled with. Greco-Roman culture, the culture in which Jesus is giving this Sermon on the Mount where he says adultery is actually when you look with lustful intent. In that kind of culture, people struggled with lust. There were temples in almost every Greco-Roman city and at, a, at almost every temple there would be temple prostitutes where you would go down and you would combine worship with basically a sexual orgy and that, is, that was kind of a normal thing for people to do. I think what is different now for our society is the accessibility that we have. See back then you had to make a conscious decision going to go to the temple to do you know what like I'm going to actually go there and make a conscious decision you were driven by lustful intent but you had to actually do something to it now lust comes to us images are surrounded we are surrounded by images you walk in the shopping center there will be images of uh, beautiful women in alluring positions and it it 
it actually promotes lust within us. The access we have through technology, the fashion that is normal now for people to wear, not only means that our accessibility is more, but I think actually it's almost inescapable. Unless you want to actually live like a hermit, it is inescapable to be confronted by these things which have the potential to develop lust within us. And it is in this culture, because the word of God is relevant for all time, it is in this culture which Jesus says, you must never look with lustful intent upon anyone else or you've committed adultery in your heart. So why was this so serious to God? Let's think about why it's so serious looking at how God views adultery, because adultery is sexual immorality. That's why Jesus connects the two. And the idea of adultery being such a serious offense comes from basically the covenant of marriage being symbolic of the covenant that God has with his people. God covenanted with the people Israel, which is to say he committed to them. He said, I will love you and care for you. You are mine. I'm going to bring you into this covenant relationship. And the covenant of marriage is based on that idea of God and his people. So in Isaiah 54, Isaiah writes and says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of your youth when she is cast off, says your God. So God views his people and viewed his people Israel like this deserted wife, this abandoned wife. And God says, I'm going to now bring you in to my marriage. I'm going to covenant with you and I will care for you for your maker is your husband. And we see this continued through the New Testament because Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ. This marriage relationship continues through the church as the bride and Jesus as the groom who is returning and will bring us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why God cares so much about marriage, because marriage is symbolic and marriage fidelity is symbolic of our faithfulness in this covenant of marriage. God has married himself to us. And in God's eyes, marriage is once and for all. He will never renege on that. He will never renege on his marriage to his people because he is faithful. Now, adultery is sexual immorality, but not all sexual immorality is adultery in, in the strict sense. But given the way Jesus applies this passage and talks mostly about sexual immorality, the broad term, it's helpful for us to, to approach this thinking about sexual immorality rather than simply adultery, given that, well, all of you are not married, so um, at no risk of adultery, yet at a lot of risk of sexual immorality. So this is how Jesus refers to this. This is how we will view this today. This is warning us against sexual immorality and the the definition of sexual immorality from a biblical point is basically anything outside of heterosexual marriage and things which you would do under the covenant of marriage so the word is porneia which is where we get pornography from that's the word for sexual immorality and in the context of the bible it basically means anything outside of the 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 sexual acts that you do 
within the covenant of marriage or things that are not only outside of it, but are trying to simulate that, like sexual pleasure driven by lust. God's uh, design was always that our, our sexual drive would be um, within the covenant of marriage. Um, to be, because it is a beautiful thing to be used within the covenant of marriage. And so sexual immorality is anything that's trying to do that, trying to sexually please yourself or engage in sexual acts outside of the covenant of marriage. And as we think about sexual immorality, we should realize how serious this is throughout scripture. This is no light thing. Paul says in multiple places in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians, where he lists a bunch of descriptions of what would characterize the people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This isn't like, I know people can try and do some kind of um, explanatory gymnastics around texts and kind of try and argue it away, but there's, there's, this is just black and white. Like Paul is saying, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, as in they will go to hell. Those who stay in sexual immorality, in unrepentant sexual immorality, will then go to hell because their unrepentance and pursuit of sexual immorality will be the evidence that God's grace is not actually working within them to say no to worldly passions and to say no to ungodliness. We're all broken. We will all slip into sin. But what Paul is saying by the sexually immoral not inheriting the kingdom of heaven is that those who choose to pursue that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Sexual immorality is so serious because the Bible is clear to say that this is not simply an external act that we engage in, but it is something that reveals what is in the depths of our heart. That's what Jesus is saying. This comes from the heart. It, it, it's, not a, it's not something that doesn't harm you if it's done um, like as if it's not affecting you spiritually. It's actually revealing what's happening spiritually, and that is spiritual deadness within you. So when Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, he says, you shall not commit adultery. That's what was said. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery and sexual immorality start from the heart. Now, it's important to understand a Hebrew understanding of the heart. So that's the context of the Bible, Jesus was a Jew. Um, he's taking these uh, texts from the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, and it, that's written within a, a Jewish framework. And so from a Hebrew understanding, the heart was the place of thought and intent, as well as feelings. So they didn't have a word for brain. So the heart was actually the place of thought and feeling. It's there's, there's no place for like the modern mantra that you've probably heard in movies where someone might say, uh, my mind says no, but my heart says yes. That's just completely foreign to a, a Hebrew understanding. They would say, no, no, no. If you're pursuing sexual immorality, you're making a conscious decision. It's not like you're going against your mind. You're making a conscious decision to pursue sexual immorality. The phrase that Jesus uses here is literally looking at a woman in order to look lustfully. So all those who look 
at someone in order to then pursue lustful intent, in order to look at them with lust. Jesus is saying sexual immorality here is where you choose to pursue lust. So it is not sin to see someone and feel an initial attraction to them and recognize them as um, physically attractive. It's not sin to be tempted in that way. There is a difference in that sense. It is sin when you choose to entertain that. So most of you would know the story of David and Bathsheba, where Bathsheba is bathing on the roof and David sees her. Now, when David initially saw her on the roof, it wasn't sin. You can't avoid that. You can't avoid looking and seeing a naked woman bathing on the roof. But then what happens next after that? It says that David inquired of her. So it was, it was not sin when David initially saw her. It was sin when David said, who's that woman there? Who is she? It was sin. That was actually when David's adultery began, when he started to pursue with lustful intent Bathsheba. So sexual immorality starts from unchecked desires, desires that we do not check deep within us that we then allow ourselves to think about. We entertain them. They grow within us. James, in his letter, says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It is our unchecked desires. So James is saying we're lured and enticed by our desires. And then that desire ends up leading us towards sin and the sin leads to death. This isn't an innocent thing. This is life and death. Unchecked desires, which start from what has gripped our hearts, lead to sin and death. And that's why we talk and I want us to talk so much about being captivated by Christ. That's what we want to do when we gather. We want him to reveal his glory so that we are captivated by him, so that our desires are for him. Because if our desires are not for him, we have that. We don't lose that. No one has no desire. We all have desire and it will either be given to Christ or it will be given to other things, to worldly passions. And so we want to be captivated by Christ. Because if you are not captivated by him, then your desires are not for him. And like James says, it will lead to sin and death. Sexual immorality comes when we are lured and enticed by our own desires, causing us to sin. And the sin brings death. So this isn't just an innocent vice. Paul describes the results of sexual immorality another way in 1 Corinthians 6, where he talks about sexual immorality. And he says in this section, uh, starting from verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So he's saying, do you not know that you, a Christian, uh, you partake in Christ? And that's, we take the Lord's Supper every week, showing that we are partakers of his body and blood. So you are partakers, you are members with Christ. 
Are you then as members of Christ going to take yourself and join yourself to a prostitute, join yourself to this form of sexual immorality? So in sexual immorality, whether it is pornography, whether it is fantasizing about other people, or actual physical acts of sex with someone outside of the covenant of marriage, you are joining yourself to that personal act. There's something that happens. And that's why Paul says, why would you take your body and make it a member with a prostitute? Verse 16, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her in this intimate act. A part of you is joined to something. Whether that's psychologically, through things like pornography, if you have ever struggled with pornography, you would know. You don't lose those memories. Even if you did it before coming to Christ and then after, you don't lose those memories. They're there and they're very graphic and they will stay with you. It takes a part of you. It's the same thing with sexual acts. You give yourself physically to that person. They take a part of you. And that's because sex is reserved for the covenant of marriage. And in the covenant of marriage, what does God say about it from the beginning? Two become one. That was always how it was meant to be because God's covenant with his people is bringing us into this unity. That's why Jesus prays, Father, I pray that there will be one just as you and I are one, that there would be this oneness. And so in the covenant of marriage, there is this joining together to become one. And sex was reserved for the covenant of marriage. So when sexual acts or sexual immorality is done outside of the covenant of marriage, though it's not entirely the same, but what is happening is there's this simulated sense of oneness. It's distorted because it's not in in God's um, ordained purpose. But still, there is this act of the joining of two people. Like I said, even in things like verbal sexual immorality or masturbation over pornography, something psychologically is happening there. Paul says in this section in 1 Corinthians 6, every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but sexual immorality is done to the body. It's done to yourself. So sexual immorality takes what is holy and joins to something unholy. That's what happens. Sexual immorality takes something that is holy and joins it to something that is unholy. Think of the most grotesque thing for you and for me, and I don't want to um, make light of this subject, but just thinking of like the most grotesque thing would be like if there was just a container full of cockroaches or something like that and just being thrown into that, like consumed by the cockroaches becoming one. Think how disgusting that is. Whatever for you, it may be spiders, it may be feces, whatever it is, the most grotesque thing. And that's how we should think of sexual immorality. We're actually being joined to something grotesque in the eyes of God because it always reminds him of his people's adultery away from him with the foreign nations. God's people were always meant solely to worship him and they prostituted themselves. If you want to see how much God hates this, just read through the book of Hosea. It's all about God telling Hosea, go marry a prostitute and when she goes and prostitutes herself out, you remember that that's what the children of Israel have done to me. That's what they've done to me. They've prostituted themselves out with the people of the land. So 
it is something that is grotesque and it's damaging to us. It damages us. Let's look closer now at why we should live sexually pure lives. So what I want to do now is look at why, give three reasons for why we should live sexually pure lives and then finish with how, how we do that. Firstly, one reason why we should flee sexual immorality and seek purity is because, as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6, we have been united to Christ. So it is our union with Christ that means we flee sexual immorality and we seek purity. So Paul is saying this, don't become members with a prostitute because you are a member of Christ. You are partakers of Christ. You've been united with him. So salvation is not simply God forgiving us. Salvation is not simply God forgiving us and then saying, okay, go play for a while and I'll pick you up when I'm ready for you. You go do what you want. Just wait at the bus stop. I'll come pick you up when I return and bring you into heaven. That's not salvation. That's a very cheap, superficial idea. Salvation is God the Father forgiving you, bringing you into his family, taking you, saying, I've called you by name. Come into my family. Come and enjoy my presence. Come and enjoy all the rights of being a child of God and live the way that I have ordained you to live. Live a holy life because you're mine, because I've saved you and brought you in. I've washed you by the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. You are in me. You're part of my family. That's why Paul constantly uses the expression in Christ throughout all of his letters. You're in Christ. You are in him. We are actually in Jesus Christ because we are united by him, yoked together. That's why we get all of the beautiful privileges of being sons and daughters, of knowing that he hears all of our prayers, every single one of them, answers them according to the righteousness of Christ, looks upon us and says, my beloved son and daughter, yes, come and enter into my joy because we are united to him in Christ. And so why then, being united with Christ, would we then want to take that? and be joined to something like sexual immorality, be joined to something that is unholy. We have been united to purity. And so we live in that way. What a beautiful thing that God doesn't say, be pure and then you'll be united to me. He says, be united to me. Now live in a pure way, live moral, upright lives. Secondly, the reason why we flee sexual immorality is because we have been bought with a price. So in this section in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, he finishes by saying, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you know the price you were bought with? Imagine a beloved family member or friend, someone who you love dearly, one of the closest people to you. Imagine they commit a crime, they have a moment of weakness, they commit a crime against a vulnerable person and the government wants to make an example of them. They send them to prison for 20 years. It's going to be basically their whole life gone. And you get an opportunity in only a month into their 20-year sentence to basically pay a financial expiation to, in, in a sense, bail them out. But it's going to cost you everything. You lose your home, everything, your savings. You have nothing. 
You have nowhere to live, but you have this family member free. You have them back. They're okay now. And imagine that two days later, they go and commit that exact same crime again. So you have nothing and now you don't have that family member. They're gone again. Imagine how that would make you feel. It would just go right in the face of the fact that you just paid for them an extreme price to free them. Now, we have been bought with the price of nothing less than the perfect, pure and priceless blood of the Father's only Son. That's the price. The Father giving up His only Son. And Paul is saying, realize the price you were bought with. Realize it. Don't forget it. Realize how much this cost. God the Father giving up His own Son. I don't think we think about this. I know I forget about it a lot, but God the Father feels emotions. He created us with emotions and we're created in His image. He would have felt what it was like to give up His Son. That moment where He had to turn His face away. There was darkness over the land. Imagine how that would feel. I imagine what, what it would be like for Eliora to have to turn my face away from her. That would break me. I'd never do it. And that's because I'm not God. But God the Father actually felt that. That was the price he paid to have his son crying out saying, why have you forsaken me? Why? The precious blood of Christ. So why would you then take with that which has been purchased? That's you. Why would you then take that which has been purchased with an unimaginable cost and give it away to cheap and worthless pleasures? The third reason for why we flee sexual immorality is because we have been called to holiness. So in another of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, he says, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Don't you want to know the will of God? Like that's the question everyone wants to know. What's God's will for my life? Should I do this? Should I do that? What does he actually want? And Paul's saying, this is God's will for your life. Live in a sexually pure way. Live in holiness. Control your body. Flee from sexual immorality. You are given a physical body so that with everything you do in that body, it would bring glory and honor to God, not in temporary, superficial, lustful passions that damage you and dishonor the God who created you for holiness. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That's what he has called you to, to a holy life. This is the life you have been called to something better, something far better than superficial, lustful pleasures that actually take from you rather than give. Something far more pure, like a life where instead of being conformed to worldliness, you are conformed to the holy pattern of your God. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. And that's what it means to be human. Just as a side point, something I heard a few weeks ago that I've been thinking about a lot is we often use the term, oh, I'm only human in a way to kind of, as if to say, um, you know, I sin, I'm only human. And we forget that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of humanity and he never sinned. We always talk about being human in a negative sense. 
Jesus never sinned. Yes, he was tempted, but he never sinned. And that's what it means to be human. And so we have been called to follow this perfect human and God, our Savior. And that is being conformed to this pattern of holiness, away from sin, away from it, and pursuing Christ, who is the perfect human and who never sinned. Now, we'll finish with how we live sexually pure lives. I've got four applications for how we live sexually pure lives. The first is a very simple one. Recover God's holiness in your life. Very simple thing. Recover God's holiness in your life. Come to know God as holy. I'll explain that a little bit. Through the week, I was reading um, a non-Christian author on the topic of sexual immorality. So they were talking about the sexualization of uh, society. And this author was saying that she felt increasingly uncomfortable. And this is, she's not a, not a Christian, though a lot of what she was saying was whether she realized it or not was very much from a Christian framework, but she's just talking about um, sexualization. And she's saying that she felt increasingly uncomfortable with the sexualization of our society when she was walking and her six-year-old child, um, they were in New York, and her six-year-old child saw a, an ad for a condom, um, a, a condom advertisement. And so it had um, basically some naked people on, on the ad, and it was, it was obviously trying to sell um, condoms. And she said that um, she felt very uncomfortable, and she said there's something about the presence of innocence that makes us keenly aware of our brokenness. There's something about the presence of innocence, an innocent child, and if they bring up something that seems impure, if, if your um, friend or neighbor, but you know, someone who is mature brought that up, you probably wouldn't feel the same thing. Whereas when someone is young and innocent and has not been shaped in that way yet brings up, you feel, you feel uncomfortable, you feel the impurity. There's something about the presence of innocence that makes us feel uncomfortable when we talk about or when we do sexually immoral things. And that's just ingrained within us. Now, what has more innocence than God's utter holiness? What has more innocence than the God who is completely separate from sin, completely separate from sin, no sin in him or near him because he is so holy where even pure angels have to cover their faces as they worship him constantly, lest they gaze upon his holiness. And if you don't know God's holiness, you don't know God, quite simply. You cannot know God and not know him as holy, as completely different from everything else that we see. And if you don't know God, then you will not stay sexually pure. John Piper says, knowing God is the path to sexual purity because the purpose of sex and the purpose of the body is to magnify the supreme worth of God and the infinite value of Jesus Christ. He's saying your bodies, the act of sex, given that it's within the covenant of marriage, is to glorify God, to glorify him, to, to show the infinite value of Jesus Christ. And why would you do that if you don't know God? And so if you don't know God, why would you then flee from sexual immorality? That's okay. It doesn't harm anyone. 
We must come to know God as holy. We must read about it, read books, the knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer, study it together, pursue an understanding of God's holiness. Read about it, ask questions about it, read the Bible and come to know God as holy. And if you do this, quite simply, you will find purity forming in your life as you are becoming closer and closer to God as holy, you will naturally find impurities brought to the surface because you cannot approach a holy God without sin being confronted and brought to the surface. And then we trust that his grace will guide us to discard those impurities from us. That's what his grace does. God's holiness will bring impurities to the surface and his grace will allow us to cast them to the side. The second way how we live sexually pure lives is to err on the side of caution. Always err on the side of caution. That's what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. When he's talking about this, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin or to stumble, then gouge it out, cast it out. Far too often I've heard people talk about this and they state the obvious saying that Jesus is talking in hyperbolic terms like, yes, he's exaggerating. But then they just, well, what's he saying then? Of course, he's exaggerating. But the point of that is to say you have to do something extreme. This is serious. You have to do something extreme to cast this sexual immorality away. If you don't understand this, then you will deceive yourself into thinking that you don't actually have to do something extreme. Oh, well, that's not what Jesus is saying. You know, he's not saying we actually have to kind of get rid of all our pornography or we have to stop doing that. I, th I think pretty clearly he's saying do something extreme. That's what he's saying. And so I think the principle is that we always err on the side of caution. So I've heard it said many times before, worldliness is where you make sin seem normal and righteousness seem weird. And so to a lot of people, erring on the side of caution with this will seem weird, but that is just a very worldly way of thinking. So for me, I love the beach. We don't have it here in Canberra. Pine Island isn't exactly the best substitute for it. But back in Adelaide, I, I used to love the beach and we have the South Coast um, I actually much prefer it in winter and a big part of that reason is I don't like going to the beach in the summertime. I don't want to be confronted by uh, people practically half naked or a lot closer to that. I just don't want it. I don't want that. I'm always going to err on the side of caution. I'm going to follow what Jesus says here. I'm just going to stay away from it. I don't need that. Whatever it is for you, cut it out. Err on the side of caution. Wisdom is to err on the side of caution. Pride that would scoff at that is to ignore caution and pride always comes before the fall. Always. Don't trust yourself. Trust God, err on the side of caution, stay away from it. Thirdly, recognize what will weaken you spiritually. We, we have to be acutely aware of what weakens us spiritually because the chances of sexual immorality creeping into our lives or really any immorality 
will be far more likely when you are weakened spiritually. Too often we are undercritical. We're undercritical about the things we do. And something we should always be thinking is, is this going to profit me spiritually? Is this going to profit me? Is watching 10 hours of this TV show going to profit me spiritually? Or is it going to weaken me? When I watch certain things, uh, and I don't think we watch a lot of um, TV or movies, but occasionally we do. And when I watch certain TV shows afterwards, I just feel spiritually flabby. Like it doesn't motivate me to want to pursue the Lord. It just makes me feel weak. I feel like I have to do a lot more. It's like when if you're training for uh, physical fitness and you're working out of the gym and then you go and binge on like McDonald's or something like that. It's not going to motivate you to want to get back in the gym other than out of like self-loathing that you did that to yourself. But it's not going to make you feel like, oh, I'd love to go run 10Ks right now. And that's the same sort of thing. Like there's there's activities that we might do that sometimes are, are neither good nor bad, but they actually weaken us spiritually. They put us in a place where we are vulnerable and we're susceptible to immorality coming in. So think, will this weaken me spiritually? Don't put yourself in a place where it will. Uh, John Wesley wrote to his mum, Susanna Wesley, uh, asking for a definition of sin. And Susanna Wesley, uh, a very wise woman, gave this answer. She says, take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God or takes off your relish of spiritual things, In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. So what she's saying is whatever weakens your reason for spiritual things, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, whatever takes your gaze off of God, Whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, no matter how innocent it may be in itself. Stay away from it. The last element of this, the last application for why or how, sorry, for how we live holy, pure lives is to be saturated with God's word. So a very simple uh, application here but we can't lose the force of this so in psalm 119 verse 9 the psalmist says how can a young man keep his way pure so that's kind of like the question we're asking here how can a young man how can anyone keep their life pure answer by guarding it according to your word by guarding it according to your word that's how someone stays in the path of purity by guarding that purity according to your word implication be saturated with god's word be in it this is one of the most basic spiritual disciplines of the christian community yet i am amazed at how easy it is i'm scared quite honestly scared of how easy it is for many professing christians to only open their bibles like once or twice a week and that seems to be a normal thing That's actually quite good. I'm doing pretty well. 
But this has to be a daily thing. There's a reason why the psalmist says day and night, meditate upon your word, be enraptured, saturated with it. This is our oxygen. So don't let anyone say, oh, that's a bit legalistic, Tom. That's a bit legalistic, reading your word every single day. Is it legalistic for you to drink water every day? If I say, Tony, that's a bit legalistic, man. You're always coming here with your drink bottle. Bit of a moralistic guy, aren't you? Absurd. It would be absurd. And yet we, we so often do that with basic spiritual disciplines. Oh, that's a bit legalistic. This is our oxygen. It would be like a, a scuba diver going into the water without their oxygen tank saying, that's a bit legalistic. I don't need that. What a ridiculous thing. We need the word of God in the face of deep temptation. Jesus, 40 days without eating, when he was fasting in the wilderness, when he was off and Satan is tempting him to do a very easy thing. Just turn this stone into bread, Jesus. Have some nourishment. Man, you're looking pretty thin. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. That's how we live. We live because we live by every word from the mouth of God. So on the path of sexual purity, on the path to holiness, the word of God is our nourishment. It must be there. It must be something that we saturate ourselves with. It is our oxygen for this spiritual path of discipleship.